We are moving towards Easter. As we move towards Easter, we're moving through a series of sermons reflecting on the resurrection. We want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. Next week, when we hit this part in the sermon, we will not dismiss them, but we will intentionally keep them, and we'll be doing things throughout the week that remember they're with us. The whole point of children going to Children's Church is that they are being equipped to return and to re-engage and to move into fuller participation in the life of our church. That's what they're, we're trying to do there. So next week we'll have a practice Sunday for them. Um, and we'll also be mindful through this service that um, we've got younger participants with us. The fuller picture of our covenant community as we move through the sermon. Anyway, uh, we're looking at several sermons that relate to one of the great themes in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, The Apostle Paul, we saw in our sermon last week, called this a matter of first importance. He lumped it together with the death of Jesus for our sins as the two halves of the great gospel message. And he said, if we do not stand fast in this, if we lose hold of this, our faith could be in vain. So recognizing the great importance he put on it, we'll spend several weeks thinking about it. Now, we're not going to say the same thing every week. But we'll be looking at the why this is so important and how the resurrection of Jesus impacts every part of what we think about as Christians. And we're going to want to make sure we we do that well. If this is a matter of first importance, then it really should shape what we think about in other areas and what we do in other areas. The passage we're looking at today, uh, we see a little section in italics that reminds us of Paul calling this a matter of first importance. We're going to read several sections, and this is a a long, theologically dense section of the Bible. I know that. Um, But by looking at these things together, there's a lot we can learn. In particular, we'll be looking to see what does the resurrection of Jesus tell us about what it means to be human, to live in a body, and to share a hope of the resurrection ourselves. That's an important thing. So we'll be looking at that as we move through it. Here are these readings beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, 
For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. In verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the imperishable puts on the, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So about almost 16 years ago, it'll be 16 years ago this summer, Chrissy, my wife, and I uh, went to Southern Africa for the summer, and on the way, we had a 12-hour layover in London. So 12 hours is too long to sit in the airport, just long enough to get out and tour the city, but it's hard to see London in 12 hours. As you fly around from place to place, you glance at Big Ben, you see Westminster Abbey, someone says, look, London Bridge, you go to a park couple museums, and then you're rushing back on a high-speed train to get to the airport on time, which we did, barely. The passage we're looking at today is even an abbreviation of 1 Corinthians 15. There's more. And some of the things not mentioned are also interesting asides with thorny issues. Books have been written on this passage because there is so much here. It feels to me as if it's sort of a 12-hour walking tour of a major city. The disadvantage is you feel like you're not looking at anything quite long enough. The advantage, though, and if you can do a 12-hour tour of any major city, please do it because you'll never forget it. It's worth it. The advantage is you sort of see the parts together. And, and sometimes you see something you wouldn't get if you just spent the whole time in one building. So today we're doing a walking tour. It's going to be quick, and there'll be massive structures that we'll merely look at as a, I feel a bit like a tour guide, I'll point them out and say, look at that, it's splendid, it changed the world, it's really important, let's move on. But I want to draw this, your attention to this interesting theme. It's a, it's a connection in the passage that's often missed. After all, this is pretty famous stuff. You, you may have heard these things before. It, it, you may not have been to many funerals, but if you are, this is very common funeral reading. Verses 51 to 57 in particular are the part of the Bible that's historically read at the very end of a Christian funeral. As a family stands by a casket for the last time, contemplating the reality of death, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul telling us death is not final. There is a victory in Jesus that is so deep it extends even to our bodies. This is a great hope, and we'll talk about it some today, but it also will feel as if we're moving quickly. 
What I want to draw your attention to, though, is of something that we can easily overlook as we move past these impressive theological edifices, so to speak, these great buildings, these great passages of the faith. And that is the immediate context of the letter. The context of the letter is one in which Paul was dealing with a very real problem that the Corinthians had, is they were thinking theologically about Jesus and about themselves. It was a problem, we'll see in a moment, that had to do with what they thought about the human body and what they thought about, therefore, what it means to be human. In other words, the, the immediate context of all this is a very practical question about what does it mean for us to be human? The end of it is also incredibly practical. Often people will finish reading in verse 57, um, but the, the text continues in a very, with a very important therefore in verse 58. Paul had just talked about this great hope, this resurrection hope. Death does not have the final word. There's an amazing victory in Jesus. 58, verse 58, he says, therefore. And the application Paul makes is very, in a sense, earthy. He says it's a very real application of all these glorious future things for your life right now, your experience in the body. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the thread I want to draw out today as we move through it. What is, what does, when Paul teaches here about the resurrection and its impact on our future hope, what does that tell us about our experience now, our experience as people that have bodies. Now, you might think that's coming out of left field, but it was exactly what they were struggling with in Corinth. Look with me at the first verse. It's not italicized. This is verse 12. Paul says, as he's done throughout this letter, when he hits an issue that is sort of a problem, he'll say, now, now I've heard, or now uh, we know that this is happening. He's getting reports about Corinth. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So the background problem that is driving this section of the letter is that some people in Corinth say there's no resurrection of the dead. It was a philosophical position. It was a, a doctrinal statement, so to speak. Now, what was happening here, apparently, is that they were being inconsistent. These people had a belief that there was no future hope of resurrection for humans. Our future hope would not be physical or bodily. But when they heard about the resurrection of Jesus and the, the preaching of this gospel message was, uh, was brought with power by the Holy Spirit, they believed. They believed Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Paul assumes that here. He's, he's writing to Christians. He's not giving here an argument to those outside the church, though we can adapt it. He's speaking to Christians, and he's speaking about an inconsistency in their belief. Verse 13, we see exactly that. Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, clearly, Paul assumes that the people he's speaking to believe Christ has been raised. Now, why would they be stuck on this issue of the resurrection of the dead? And the answer is quite simple is that they came from a cultural background where that was a very strong value. 
There were many things people would have believed in the ancient world, and even the, the, the Greco-Roman world would have been full of competing views of what it means to be human and what hope we have after we die. And sort of standard old-time traditional pagan view said the really important thing is that you are a body. And even though there is a spirit or a soul inside it, when you die, that body will be something of a, a ghost or a shade or a shadow, and it's really good to be alive. If you read Homer in, in one of his great stories, the, the, Adia, uh, the um, Iliad or the, uh, um, anyway, you know, I'm combining them together, and if I try to keep going now, I'll, I'll really get in the pit. Um, but, but with that in the background, other more contemporary Greek philosophers were saying quite different things. Everyone tended to think that there was a body, a physical body, and some spirit or soul, some inner life within it, sort of an intuitive human reflex as we wrestle with what it means to be human. Uh, but in the beginning of the 4th century BC, Plato was teaching something very different. And the philosophers that followed from him would teach that the really important thing about humans is not that they have a body, but that they have a soul. In fact, Plato said, you have an immortal soul. And the real problems we face is that your immortal soul is stuck inside, an, inside of a human body. So the best thing that can happen is to die a righteous life and to move forward into a great, glorious future of hope for your soul as it floats around somewhere in space or something like that. And many, many versions could have been said. This teaching would have been found many forms. But uh, it's likely that these these uh, Corinthians in one of the leading cities of the Greco-Roman world would have been deeply infected by all of that. And so when they say there's no resurrection of the dead, what they're affirming was a very common philosophical tenet of the people around them and probably one that they would have been indoctrinated with most of their life. What does it mean to be human? Well, if you'd asked a Corinthian, they may have said, well, we know there's no resurrection of the dead. They may have just followed and told you everything they had learned growing up in this sort of platonic worldview of humanity. They would have said, well, you know, my great important soul inside a body, uh, maybe someday I'll be free. Isn't it nice that Jesus rose from the dead? What Paul's pointing out is an inconsistency here. They, they had believed in the resurrection, but it wasn't clearly of first importance. Something else was higher. The philosophical system they grew up in, the worldview assumptions that they had lived in, their thoughts of their neighbors, the comments of the philosophers on the street and in the marketplace, that was driving their view of the end and as a result, their view of the now. If your body's just a husk that you move beyond, then it's not all that important. The true, the true thing is your inner soul, wherever that may be. What Paul is pointing out here is that if we believe the resurrection of Jesus is of first importance, then we want that to shape everything else. He points out the obvious here, and they, again, he's, it seems as if he's writing, assuming all of the people with him would say, may that never be. But he says, if you believe categorically that there's no resurrection of the dead, then what do you do with Jesus? That's his point. And he's assuming these Corinthian Christians would say, oh yeah, that's a problem. After all, Jesus appeared from the dead. And as Paul you know, wrote last week, this is a central tenet of the Christian faith. He appeared in bodily form to 500 people. They touched him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a, a misty spirit inhabiting some future realm, but he had a body. He ate food. 
Now, it was a different kind of body. We're going to see in a second what we learn about the body of Jesus and what that teaches us. But it was a physical body. And so what Paul sees here in this understanding of the resurrection of Jesus is going to shape not only our future hope, but our experience of now. Uh, it's an ambitious project to cover in the next 20 minutes, but let's jump into it. What are a few things we can grasp and hold on to as we move through the passage? Well, as we look at the paragraph uh, 20 to 26, what really comes out here is that Jesus is the first fruit in his resurrection of a later resurrection. You see that word first fruit shows up multiple times. Uh, what does that mean? It means that the first fruit came before the harvest, but it had a connection to the harvest. So if you had a first fruit of barley, the barley would come up in the spring, you get a little bit of spring, but you're really waiting for the big harvest later. Now, this was important in the agricultural systems and even the religious systems of Israel gave special prominence to the first fruit. If you were hungry all winter, the first fruit was really good to receive. What Paul is drawing out here is he says there's an inherent connection between the resurrection of Jesus and a later resurrection of everyone else. Now, he doesn't here go much into the categories of what happens to those raised outside of Christ. He'll cover that in other places. He's thinking with Christians in a Christian perspective here. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus is the first fruit of what will happen later. There's a continuity between them. So whatever you think about your future hope, it's going to be similar to the resurrection of Jesus. The, the other key backdrop here that we'll just briefly mention is that what Paul was teaching about the resurrection was consistent with traditional Jewish views on the matter. You may remember Jesus talking with the Pharisees. They both had a disagreement on many things, but they agreed that the great future hope taught in the Hebrew Scriptures was that one day the righteous would be raised to a bodily eternal life. Now, just as the Corinthians were wrestling, some of the Jewish people who were wrestling, the Sadducees were more Greek, perhaps, and they denied this. You remember all the controversies that would go on. But by and large, traditional Jewish teaching taught this, and what they also taught is that the hope of the resurrection was associated with the end of the world and the restoration of all things. In this passage, Paul is actually quite clearly quoting from several psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, where he speaks about all things being brought under the feet of God. And so the expectation Jewish people would have had at the time of Jesus is that when the Messiah comes, it will be associated with the resurrection and the restoration of all things. God is going to bring his perfect order onto the world. What Paul uses that idea, and in, in the case that he's making here, is that Jesus in his first coming is the first fruit, but there will be a second harvest. And, and what that tells us is that Paul and other New Testament writers view the resurrection of Jesus as the first event in the end of the world. It might be a weird way for us to think about it. It wasn't just a weird one-time thing that happened, but it was the beginning of a new world order that's starting to break in. And that's why many New Testament writers would say we're in the last days. The last days is everything between the first fruit and the full harvest. It might be weeks, months, years. We've now been waiting 2,000 years. Maybe it'll be more. But we wait and look for the completion of that first thing that Jesus started here. 
So what we draw from this passage, again, it's so important that Jesus is the beginning of the end, so to speak. And that means the resurrection of Jesus brings great power into our lives. We'll talk about that in upcoming weeks. But practically speaking, it also means that we expect that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. That's what Paul is teaching. Well, secondly, uh, first we saw this, this paragraph that, that uh, looks at this continuity and Jesus being the beginning of the end. Um, secondly, however, we move to the next paragraph, verses 35 to 44, we see some, uh, 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 some really interesting things in here about a future body and a present body. Again, what Paul is saying here was standard traditional Jewish theology, that the hope we have is an embodied hope of a physical resurrection. And the implication of that has a lot to tell us about what it means to be human. Uh, three things we'll see real quickly as we look at the passage. First, Paul compares a future body with the current body, and he says it's better. That's sort of the most obvious thing that jumps out, right? Verse 40, there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. Uh, there is uh, glory of one kind, glory of another. There's, a, uh, there's a, a connection between the body we have now and a future body. The body we have now is like a seed sown into the earth. It goes in perishable and comes up imperishable. Now, part of what's driving this is a question Paul anticipates. It's an understandable question, but Paul sees it as an attempt to get around the issue. Uh, some, of, some of these folks may be pushing back at Paul a little bit. He anticipates it. And they, they may say, okay, Paul, you're saying there's a physical resurrection, but uh, tell me this. How is our body going to be raised if it's decomposed in the ground? Or, a really sneaky one, Paul, what if instead of being buried, Christians have historically buried people with hope of the resurrection, Right? But what if, what if instead of being buried, someone falls in the ocean, they drown, a fish eats them, that other fish uh, eats another fish, and then people eat the fish, how are you going to resurrect that person? You can anticipate someone saying that might be what Paul's anticipating. He doesn't have time for it. He says, you foolish person. If God's going to raise the dead, he can do it. God chooses the body. Now, there is a continuity. The seed goes in one way, it comes up another way. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was recognizable. And he had the scars in his hand and in his side. It was Jesus, but he was Jesus with a renewed, restored, end-time body. He wasn't just brought back to what he was. It was the breaking in of the end. And he goes into detail about all the ways what you will be is, what you, is better than what you are now. Was sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown natural, raised spiritual. When he says a spiritual body, he's not denying it's physical, but he's saying it is for a spiritual purpose. We saw that earlier contrast, an earthly body and a heavenly body. Your new body will be perfectly aligned to the purposes of heaven conform to the purposes of God, the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth, Revelation 20 to 22. So the, the first thing is our hope is a better and greater body that really is, is uh, attuned to everything it needs to be. But there's a, another lesson that's a little, uh, we have to dig for slightly and super important for us to consider. In verse 40, Paul does say this, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. Here's what we need to know now that's so practical and important. 
Paul says there is a glory of your present earthly body. Again, this is, this is probably exactly where he would be arguing with his Corinthian friends. They would have said, if they were indoctrinated in the, maybe the philosophic wisdom, they would have said, the really important thing is your soul, don't worry about your body. That's just an outside husk. And Paul says, no, to be human is to be embodied. We are a soul and a body or a spirit and a body, mind and body. We are, we might say, psychosomatic. And so a Christian thinking of what it means to be human never diminishes the importance of our bodies. We don't choose body or soul, body or spirit. Rather, we recognize God has made us to be both. In some places, the Bible tells us that as we wait for the resurrection of the dead, our souls rest in Christ. It's a good promise. But the hope of the Bible always moves to resurrection, to a restoration so deep it restores our body. We're not spiritual beings somehow trying to escape a physical existence. The physical existence is good in itself. It's marred by sin and selfishness and rebellion against God. But when God created the world, it was physical and he said, it's good. Your body is good. Marred by sin, we know that. We're growing there in a second. Broken. But beautifully and wonderfully made. The third thing we notice here, again, just to draw out, and I... And already led this way a little bit, is our current bodies, though glorious, are perishable. They are sown in dishonor, in weakness. They're natural. They, they are glorious. And you, you pause to think about the amazing things that the human body can do. Christians of all people are, are first in line to say, that is amazing. You know, humans are incredible animals for endurance distances, right? We're more than animals, but we do a marathon distance better than any creature, even the really fast ones. We can swim and climb trees. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> we have the ability in our minds to form language, to write poetry, to write novels. We have split the atom amazing stuff that humans can do and yet we are marred and broken our capacity is used not only for good but also for harm we use our intellect not only to fulfill God's purposes in creating and creating and cultivating the world around us but we use them to rebel we use our gifts to hurt others and we see that humans are beautifully, wonderfully made. If we look back in the beginning of the Bible, we would hold on to the language of the image of God or the imago Dei. We have value and dignity. And yet the Bible as a whole reminds us that we're also deeply broken. Let me just pause here and, and, and as we sort of move this thing to a, to a, a, a head. The reason I think this is so important is, isn't, isn't it really true it is, that many of our deepest struggles relate to just trying to figure out how to live in our bodies? 
And it may be tempting for us to, to follow the, the Greek philosophers before us and say, oh, it's nothing, it's no big deal, just forget about it and have pure intellectual thoughts. The, the Bible doesn't do that. It takes our bodily existence so seriously. It's a place of great joy and great promise and great pain and brokenness. Some of the deepest hurts in your life have been around the brokenness of our bodies, haven't they? What we see, the incredible capacity we have as humans to do things. And yet some of us know that all of our life, in different ways, we've been under the shadow of physical brokenness. Our bodies don't always do what they're supposed to do. And that hurts. The Bible does not tell us to forget it. It acknowledges that reality and gives us a greater hope beyond it. Some of the deepest pains you have and those around you have is when the brokenness of the world hits our bodies. And as psychosomatic units, units body and flesh together, the Bible invites us to think about all the complexities of how our body affects what we're thinking and feeling and vice versa. The Bible gives us a really helpful model of humanity and human existence that takes seriously our spirituality and our physicality. But it also gives us hope where there's brokenness. Let me just pause. There's so many ways I wanted to expand this, and I just want to leave it before you to think about because your circumstances are so varied. I was talking to one of my kids recently about, you know, growing up and bodies changing. And uh, I realized recently that now in my mid-40s, I am starting to become comfortable with my body. I mean, that might sound weird to you, but almost all my life, and I've been really shaped by a level of discomfort. One degree or another, sometimes small or sometimes in the background, but always wishing I was a little bigger, a little stronger, now a little thinner. Sometimes we want more gray, sometimes we want less. That's just a surface thing, isn't it? The intersection of our mind and our bodies as it, in, as it enters into the areas of relationships, sexuality. That's where the stuff of life is happening, isn't it? Friends, what I want you to see today is that as we think about what it means to be human, if we think about it in biblical terms, we have such great, great gospel hope. Look at what Paul does, and we move to a conclusion here. He gives us all the tools to take seriously the reality of the brokenness in our world and in our experience. And then he says... Behold, I tell you a mystery. As difficult as funerals are, when I get to this point, I'm always deeply moved by the text and the, the sheer unbridled hopefulness of this passage as it is so often read against the backdrop of some of our darkest experiences. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. There is a victory so deep that it will undo the brokenness that has been brought into the world through sin and rebellion. 
There's a victory coming, he says. A, a victory that is so pervasive and so ultimate that it will leave no part of God's world untouched, not even your bodies. Isn't that good news? God didn't say, oh, I made a good world. It fell into sin. It's messed up. We're going to retrieve what we can. Let's get their spirits out of there, and, and we'll do the best we can. Make the best of your life now because you're not going to have any of this physical stuff later. Now, you'll have, we're going to have heavenly bodies, and we don't know what that's like. But I suspect one of the reasons we fail to be as moved as the biblical writers are about the glorious hope of the future is we paint it in sub-biblical terms. We think of it as some, maybe some sort of shady, misty, ethereal future circumstance, and that is not what Paul says. That is not what Jesus experienced. That is not what the church has proclaimed for 2,000 years. Friends, what I'm telling you today is so incredibly unoriginal. It is not a hidden point. It's not just some little thing we're pulling out of the back. It is the center of the gospel message. Jesus was raised in bodily form. And we too will share in the resurrection. That's good news. Paul says, in a moment, whether we're here when Jesus returns or we've been in the ground with our bodies waiting spiritually present with him, in a moment we will be changed and the renewal will affect everything. Therefore, therefore, we are people of hope. Verse 58, therefore, we are steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a lot of stuff around us that could be in vain. And Paul warns us in the beginning, he says, if you don't hold on to the resurrection of Jesus, your faith will be in vain. But here in the conclusion, he invites these Corinthians into a way of viewing the world where even their everyday labors take on new significance. In the Lord, he says, your labor is not in vain, immovable, steadfast. That's not my natural bodily existence. I'm up and down, I'm all over the place, here and there, and uh, happy one minute, sad the next, the sun shines, the clouds come, I'm moving everywhere, and Paul says when we, we, we fix our hope on this unbelievable, almost unbelievable, humanly speaking, this tremendous future glory of a resurrection, we will be unmovable. May that be so for us. May we be people who take seriously the suffering of those around us, recognizing that some of it doesn't get fixed in this life. And we weep with those who weep, and we grieve with those who grieve, and we recognize the sorrow and loss that is real and deep. And we hope in a victory so deep and real that the sting of death itself will no longer be felt. Where in the book of, words of the book of Revelation, God himself will wipe away the tears from every eye. And we will enter into his presence as we were meant to be. 
May that be our hope. Let's pray.